Love what you hear? Be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, and even our D&D adventure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast, where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And today, we're talking about the RPG that kind of shaped the modernist way that we see a lot of RPGs played, and in terms of story elements, in terms of kind of the turn-based things that really popularized Final Fantasy and got them to the next step. Yeah, Final Fantasy regularly hits lists of one of the top Final Fantasy games of all time. Obviously has been very influential on the series. Um, Not too long ago received a remake as well that got great reviews. I'm excited to talk about this one today. It is a thick boy with a lot of interesting info, isn't it, Alex? Yeah, so we'll be talking about Final Fantasy VII today. We'll be going kind of in-depth on what it was to create this, why it deserved, and has a remake, as Derek had said, and, and kind of the ins and outs of how that's changed, what RPGs are today from what they were back then, but what it's kept, you know, from its core. So Final Fantasy VII is a 1997 role-playing video game developed by Square for the PlayStation console. It is the seventh main installment in the Final Fantasy series. Published in Japan, it was released in other regions by Sony Computer Entertainment and is the first in the main series with a PAL release. The game's story follows Cloud Strife, a mercenary who joins an eco-terrorist organization to stop a world-controlling megacorporation from using the planet's life essence as an energy source. Events send Cloud and his allies in pursuit of Sephiroth, a former member of the corporation who seeks to destroy the planet. During the journey, Cloud builds close friendships with his party members, including Aerith, Gainsborough, who holds the secret to saving their world. Now, development began in 1994, originally for the Super Famicom. After delays and technical difficulties from experimenting on several real-time rendering platforms, Square moved production to pre-rendered video necessitating the huge capacity of the CD-ROM format, and therefore departing Nintendo for the PlayStation. Veteran Final Fantasy staff returned, including series creator and producer Hironobu Sakaguchi, director Yoshinori Kitsai, and composer Nobuo Umatsu. The game is the first in the series to use full motion video and 3D computer graphics, superimposing real-time 3D character models over-pre-rendered CGI backgrounds. Final Fantasy VII introduced more widespread science fiction elements and a more realistic presentation, while the gameplay systems remained largely similar to previous entries, with the addition of new elements such as materia, limit breaks, and new minigames. 
The staff of more than 100 had a combined development and marketing budget of around 80 million U.S. dollars. Now, assisted by a large marketing campaign, Final Fantasy VII was a commercial success and received universal acclaim, as Derek had said, selling more than 13.3 million copies worldwide. It is regarded as a landmark game and as one of the greatest and most influential video games ever made. It won numerous Game of the Year awards, and it was acknowledged for boosting sales of the PlayStation and popularizing console role-playing games worldwide. Critics praised its graphics, gameplay, music, and story, although its original English localization received a little criticism. Its success has led to enhanced ports of various platforms, a multimedia subseries called the Compilation of Final Fantasy VII, and the ongoing multi-part high-definition Final Fantasy VII remake, the first installment of which was released in 2020. Final Fantasy VII Developer Square was initially established in September 1983 as a software subsidiary of electric power conglomerate Denyu Sha, a company led by Kunichi Miyamoto. His son, Masafumi Miyamoto, then a part-time employee at the Science and Technology Department at Keio University, had little interest in following his father into the business. After considering different career paths, Miyamoto eventually decided on computer software development at the Yokohama branch of Denyusha and Hiyoshi, with a focus on the emerging video game market. Their original offices were based in a former hairdresser's salon. The company's name was a reference to a golfing term, with Square's name meaning the team would face oncoming challenges. It also referenced a town square, emphasizing that its production environment was based on cooperation. At the time, game development in Japan was usually conducted by only one programmer. Miyamoto recognized that it would be more efficient to have graphic designers, programmers, and professional story writers working together on common projects. During these early years, the group was compared to a family business. One of the early hires, Shinichiro Kajitani, joined because he was a friend of Miyamoto and later compared the company at that time to a college club. To recruit for this new organizational structure, Miyamoto opened an internet cafe-like salon in Yokohama and offered jobs to those who demonstrated exceptional programming skills. Among those hired through this method were Hisashi Suzuki, who would go on to become Square's CEO, and Hironobu Sakaguchi and Hiromichi Tanaka, who originally worked there part-time during their university studies. Miyamoto's initial plan was to recruit from Keio University, but this never materialized. Square's first attempt at a game, and Sakaguchi's first project, was an adaptation of a television game show called Torin Ingen. As Miyamoto had not secured the license to adapt it, the show's producers forced Square to cancel the game, prompting its team to be reshuffled. Square's first completed game was The Death Trap in 1984 for the NEC PC 8801, also the first title published under the Square brand. Its sequel, Will, The Death Trap 2, released the following year and was a confirmed commercial success. Many of Square's early titles were produced for PC devices and focused on the action genre. Two of the successes from the period were Rad Racer and the 3D Battles of World Runner. In 1985, they completed a licensing agreement with Nintendo to develop titles for the Famicom, as we know it here in the U.S., the Nintendo Entertainment System, or the NES. A noted reason for the shift to Famicom development was that it was a more stable hardware to develop games for than PCs, 
which were constantly undergoing changes to their components and requiring adjustments for different setups. The company's first Famicom release was a port of Thexter in 1985, and its original game was King's Knight, 1986. During this period, the team also hired new developers, Akatoshi Kawazu and Koichi Ishii, artist Kazuko Shibuya, American programmer Nasir Gabili, and composer Nobu Uematsu. Yosuke Hiata joined that year as sales manager, then later shifted position to become publicity manager. While skeptical, Miyamoto allowed production of the game on the condition it had only a five-person staff. Sakaguchi led development, bringing in Gabelli, Kawazu, Ishii, and Yumatsu. Production of the game, eventually called Final Fantasy, proceeded in fits and starts. Sakaguchi eventually received help from the other team at Square led by Tanaka, which included Shibuya and newcomer debugger Hiroyuki Ito. Production on the game lasted roughly 10 months. While shipments of 200,000 units were planned, Sakaguchi persuaded Square to double that number. Released in 1987, the game was a commercial success, selling over 500,000 copies. The success of Final Fantasy prompted development of a sequel. Five more Final Fantasy titles would appear on the Famicom and Super Nintendo Entertainment System between Final Fantasy II and 1988, which established many of the series' recurring elements, and Final Fantasy VI in 1994. These and all their other projects were developed for Nintendo consoles, including the portable Game Boy. In 1990, Square moved its offices to the Akasaka District, then to Ibisu Shibuya in 1992. In April 1991, Square merged with an identically named dormant company in order to change its share prices. As a result of the merger, Square's foundation was backdated to the other companies in July of 1966. Following the release of Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger, Square staff began planning the next entry in the Final Fantasy series and entered the emerging 3D gaming market. The combination of hardware limitations, Nintendo's decision to continue using cartridge games over CD format for the N64, and rising cartridge prices prompted Square to move the in-production Final Fantasy VII and their other current projects onto Sony's PlayStation. This shift caused a long-standing rift between Square and Nintendo, with Nintendo saying Square should not return to them. In 1995, the company moved its headquarters to the Shimamaguro district in Meguro. Their final Super Famicom release was Sting Entertainment's Treasure Hunter G, and their first PlayStation release was Tobal No. 1 from Dream Factory, both in 1996. A licensing agreement with Sony was concluded in 1996, which stated that Sony would publish Square's next six games. That year, at Square's invitation, Takechi returned and took Mizuno's place as president. Among the staff that worked on Final Fantasy VII were Katasi as director, Naora as art director, Nomura as lead artist, and Nojima as scenario writer. Released worldwide in 1997, Final Fantasy VII was a massive commercial and critical success and went on to sell 10 million units worldwide and bring Square international fame. And that it did. We know the name as it is, and we know obviously Square Enix with the combo, but let's talk about what it took for Square to start to develop the game. Because initial concept talks for Final Fantasy VII began in 1994, as we wrapped up Final Fantasy VI. 
As with the previous installment, series creator Hironobu Sakaguchi reduced his role to producer and granted others a more active role in development. These included Yoshinori Kitsai, one of the directors of Final Fantasy VI. The next installment was planned as a 2D game for the Super Nintendo, and after creating an early 2D prototype of it, the team postponed development to help finish Chrono Trigger for the Super Nintendo. The team resumed discussions for Final Fantasy VII in 1995. The team discussed continuing the 2D strategy, which would have been the safe and immediate path compared to the radically new development paradigm behind the industry's imminent shift towards 3D gaming. The team took the riskier option to make a 3D game on new generational hardware, with their main choices being the cartridge-based N64 or the CD-ROM-based Sony PlayStation. And as we know, Nintendo trying to get that 64 DD off the ground, that's really why they were kind of still sticking with Nintendo, was being like, hey, if you can get some discs or some more like power and memory in here, we can definitely work with you. Unfortunately, with that flop of the 64 DD, and as Derek had mentioned, rising prices and cartridges, it wasn't there. So they ended up going with Sony because they knew that they could pre-render the movies. They can get everything basically on that CD disc that they couldn't do within a cartridge. Yeah, and of course, Nintendo in response was like, oh, you want discs? Well, how do you feel about these little miniature discs for the GameCube? <laughs> in contrast to the visuals and audio, the overall gameplay system remained mostly unchanged from Final Fantasy V and VI, but with a researched emphasis on player control. The initial decision was for battles to feature shifting camera angles. Battle arenas had a lower polygon count than field areas, which made creating distinctive features more difficult. The summon sequences benefited strongly from the switch to the cinematic style, as the team had struggled to portray their scale using 2D graphics. In his role as producer, Sakaguchi placed much of his effort into developing the battle system. He proposed the Materia system to provide more character customization than previous Final Fantasy games. Battles no longer revolved around characters with innate skills and roles in battle because Materia could be reconfigured between battles. Artist Tetsuya Nomura contributed to the gameplay by designing the Limit Break system as an evolution of the Desperation attacks from Final Fantasy VI. The limit breaks serve a purpose in gameplay while also evoking each character's personality in battle. Square's developers retained the passion-based game development approach from their earlier projects, but now had the resources and ambition to create the game they wanted. This was because they had extensive capital from their earlier commercial successes, which meant they could focus on quality and scale rather than obsessing over and working around their budget. Final Fantasy VII was at the time the most expensive video game ever produced with the development budget estimated between 40 million US dollars, which is equivalent to 68 million in 2021, and 45 million, which would have been equivalent to 76 million in 2021. So somewhere between mm -hmm. 40 and 45 million, or 68 to 76 in 2021 dollars. Development of the final version took a staff of between 100 and 150 people just over a year to complete. As video game development teams were usually only 20 people, the game had what was described as the largest development team of any game up to that point. The development team was split between both Square's Japanese offices and its new American office in Los Angeles, and the American team worked primarily on city backgrounds. 
And kind of speaking of where they have those development teams split and kind of working on those city backgrounds and the art, I wanted to talk about the art design and what it took to kind of create those lovable and iconic characters that we see today. Now, the game's art director was Yusuke Nayora, who had previously worked as a designer for Final Fantasy VI. With the switch into 3D, Nayora realized that he needed to relearn drawing, as 3D visuals required a very different approach than 2D. With the massive scale and scope of the project, Nayora was granted a team devoted entirely to the game's visual design. The department's duties included illustration, modeling of 3D characters, texturing, the creation of environments, visual effects, and animation. So, you know, just a bit of literally everything. <laughs> Nayora later defined the art style of Final Fantasy VII as dark and weird. The Shinra logo, which incorporates a kanji symbol, was drawn by Nayora personally. Promotional artwork and the logo artwork were created by Yoshitaka Amano, an artist whose association with the series went back to its inception. Though he had taken a prominent role in early entries, Amano was unable to do so for Final Fantasy VII due to commitments at overseas exhibitions. His logo artwork was based on Meteor, though he was initially not sure how to turn into a suitable artwork. He finally created multiple variations of the image and solicited the staff members' preferences. The green coloring represents the predominant lighting in Midgar and the color of the life stream, while the blue reflects the ecological themes present in the story. Its coloring directly influenced the general coloring of the game's environments. Another prominent artist was Nomura. Having impressed Sagaguchi with his proposed ideas, which were handwritten and illustrated rather than simply typed on a PC, Nomura was brought on as main character designer. He stated that when he was brought on, the main scenario had not been completed, but he went along like, I guess first off you need a hero and a heroine, and from there drew the designs while thinking up details about the characters. After he'd done the hero and heroine, he carried on drawing by thinking what kind of characters would be interesting to have. When he handed over the designs, he'd tell people the character details he thought up, or write them down on a separate sheet of paper. The chibi sprite artwork could not be carried over from those earlier games, as it would not fit with his new graphical direction. Nayora, in his role as an assistant character designer and art director, helped adjust each character's appearance so the actions they performed were believable. When designing Cloud and Sephiroth, Nomura was influenced by his view of their rivalry, mirroring the legendary animosity between Miyamoto Musashi and Sasuke Kojiro, with Cloud and Sephiroth being Musashi and Kijiro, respectively. Sephiroth's look was defined as kyoki, a Japanese term combining good looks with coolness. Several of Nomura's designs evolved substantially during development. Cloud's original design of slicked-back black hair with no spikes was intended to reduce polygon count in contrast with Sephiroth's long, flowing silver hair. However, Nomura feared that such masculinity could prove unpopular with fans, so he redesigned Cloud to feature a shock of spiky, bright blonde hair. Sakaguchi was responsible for writing the initial plot, which was substantially different from the final version. In this draft for the planned Super NES version, the game's setting was envisioned as New York City in 1999. Similar to the final story, the main characters were part of an organization trying to destroy Mako reactors, 
but they were pursued by a hot-blooded detective named Joe. The main characters would eventually blow up in the city. An early version of the life stream concept was present at this stage. And according to Sakaguchi, his mother had died while Final Fantasy III was being developed, and choosing life as a theme helped him cope with her passing in a rational and analytical manner. Square eventually used the New York setting in Parasite Eve, released in 1998. While the planned concept was dropped, Final Fantasy VII still marked a drastic shift in setting from previous entries, dropping the medieval fantasy elements in favor of a world that was ambiguously futuristic. While Katasi was put in charge of Final Fantasy VII, he and Nomura reworked the entire initial plot. Scenario writer Kazushigi Nojima joined the team after finishing work on Bahamut Lagoon. While Final Fantasy VI featured an ensemble cast of numerous playable characters that were equally important, the team soon decided to develop a central protagonist for Final Fantasy VII. The pursuit of Sephiroth that comprised most of the main narrative was suggested by Nomura, as nothing similar had been done in the series before. Katasi and Nojima conceived Avalanche, and Shinra as opposing organizations and created Cloud's backstory as well as his relationship to Sephiroth. Among Nojima's biggest contributions to the plot were Cloud's memories and split personality. This included the eventual conclusion involving his newly created character of Zack. The crew helped Kitasi adjust the specifics of Sakaguchi's original livestream concept. Regarding the overall theme of the game, Sakaguchi said it was, quote, not enough to make life the theme, you need to depict living and dying. In any event, you need to portray death. Consequently, Nomura proposed killing off the heroine. Aerith had become the only heroine, but the death of a female protagonist would necessitate a second. This led to the creation of Tifa. The developers decided to kill Aerith as her death would be the most devastating and consequential. Katase wanted to depict it as very sudden and unexpected, leaving, quote, not a dramatic feeling, but great emptiness. Feelings of reality and not Hollywood. The script for the scene was written by Nojima. Katase and Nojima then planned that most of the main cast would die shortly before the final battle, but Nomura vetoed the idea because he thought it would undermine the impact of Aerith's death. Several character relations and statuses underwent changes during development. Aerith was to be Sephiroth's sister, which influenced the design of her hair. The team they made Sephiroth a previous love interest of hers to deepen her backstory, but later swapped him with Zack. Vincent and Yuffie were to be part of the main narrative, but due to time constraints, they were nearly cut and eventually relegated to being optional characters. Nojima was charged with writing the scenario and unifying the team's ideas into a cohesive narrative. As Kitase was impressed with his earlier work on the mystery like Hercules no Iko 3, Kamigami no Shimoku, an entry in the Glory of Hercules series. Um, I'm going to pause real quick and just say uh, Japanese name games are the longest name games in the entire world, but I do appreciate the thought that goes behind it. It's like a Rob <laughs> McElhenney sitcom. Every time. It's a hundred percent. But to make the characters more realistic, Nojima wrote scenes in which they would occasionally argue and raise objections. Though this inevitably slowed down the pace of the story, it added depth to the characters. 
The graphical improvements allowed even relatively bland lines of dialogue to be enhanced with reactions and poses from the 3D character models. Voice acting would have led to significant load times, so unfortunately it was omitted. Masato Kato wrote several late-game scenes, including the livestream sequence and Cloud and Tifa's conversation before the final battle. Initially unaffiliated with the project, Kato was called on to help flesh out some of the story scenes. Like each of the individual scenarios writers, Kato, after thoroughly discussing the story with the entire project team, wrote his own scenes according to his tastes that were later approved after verifying that they would live up to the standards. So obviously with the shift from the Super NES to the next generation consoles, Final Fantasy VII became the first project in the series to use 3D computer graphics. Aside from the story, Final Fantasy VI had many details undecided when development began, and most design elements were hashed out along the way. In contrast with Final Fantasy VII, the developers knew from the outset it was going to be a real 3D game, so from the earliest planning stage, detailed designs were in existence. The script was also finalized, and the image for the graphics had been fleshed out. This meant that when actual development work began, storyboards for the game were already in place. The shift from cartridge ROM to CD-ROM posed some problems. According to lead programmer Ken Narita, the CD-ROM had a slower access speed, delaying some actions during the game, so the team needed to overcome this issue. Certain tricks were used to conceal load time, such as offering animations to keep players from getting bored. When it was decided to use 3D graphics, there was a discussion among the staff whether to use sprite-based character models or 3D polygonal models. While sprites proved more popular with the staff, the polygon models were chosen as they could better express emotion. This decision was influenced by the team's exposure to the 3D character models used in Alone in the Dark. Sakaguchi decided to use deformed models for field navigation and real-time event scenes for better expression of emotion, while realistically proportioned models would be used in battles. The team purchased Silicon Graphics Onyx supercomputers and related workstations, and accompanying software including Soft Image 3D, Power Animator, and N-World for an estimated total of 21 million US dollars. Many team members had never seen 3D development technology before, however. The transition from 2D graphics to 3D environments overlaid on pre-rendered backgrounds was accompanied by a focus on a more realistic presentation. In previous entries, the sizes for characters in environments are fixed, and the player has a scrolling perspective. This changed with Final Fantasy VII, in which environments shift with camera angles, and the character model sizes shift depending on both their place in the environment and their distance from the camera, giving a sense of scale. The choice of this highly cinematic style of storytelling, contrasting directly with Square's previous games, is attributed to Katasi, who was a fan of films and had an interest in the parallels between film and video game narrative. Character movement during in-game events was done by the character designers in the planning group. Designers normally cooperate with a motion specialist for such animations, but these taught themselves motion work, resulting in each character's movements different depending on their creators. Some designers liked exaggerated movements, and others went for subtlety. Much of the time was spent on each character's day-to-day -day routine animations. Motion specialists were brought in for the game's battle animations, and the first characters the team worked with were Cloud and Barrett. 
Some of the real-time effects, such as an explosion near the opening, were hand-drawn rather than computer-animated. Now, the main creative force behind the overall 3D presentation was Kazuyuki Hashimoto, the general supervisor for these sequences. Being experienced in the new technology the team had brought on board, he accepted the post at Square as the team aligned with his own creative spirit. One of the major events in development was when the real-time graphics were synchronized to computer-generated full-motion video, or FMV, cutscenes for some story sequences, including an early sequence where a real-time model of Cloud jumps onto an FMV-rendered moving train. The backgrounds were created by overlaying two 2D graphic layers and changing the motion speed of each to simulate depth perception. We see that in, in animated films as well, very early on, of kind of like creating a depth of having like multiple foregrounds and backgrounds whenever you're filming, so kind of in that same way. Now, while this was not a new technique, the increased power of the PlayStation enabled a more elaborate version of this effect. The biggest issue with the 3D graphics was the large memory storage gap between the development hardware and the console. While the early 3D tech demo had been developed on a machine with over 400 megabytes of total memory, the PlayStation only had 2 megabytes of system memory and 500 kilobytes for texture memory. The team needed to figure out how to shrink the amount of data while also preserving the desired effects. This was aided with reluctant help from Sony, who had hoped to keep Square's direct involvement limited to a standard API package, but they eventually relented and allowed the team direct access to the hardware specifications. Final Fantasy VII features two types of cutscenes. As we had said, real-time cutscenes featuring polygon models on pre-rendered backgrounds and those CGI FMV cutscenes. The FMVs were created by an international team, covering both Japan and North America and involving talent from the gaming and film industry. Western contributors included artists and staff who had worked on the Star Wars film series, Jurassic Park, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, and True Lies. The team tried to create additional optional CGI content, which would bring optional characters, Vincent and Yuffie, into the ending. As this would have further increased the number of discs the game needed, the idea was discarded. Kazuyuki Ikomori, a key figure, at the 1999-founded CGI studio Square Visual Works, helped with the creation of the CGI cutscenes, in addition to general background design. The CGI FMV sequences total around 40 minutes of footage, so like a little tiny film, something only possible with the PlayStation's extra memory space and graphical power. This innovation brought with it the added difficulty of ensuring that the inferiority of the in-game graphics in comparison to the FMV sequences was not too obvious. Katasi has described the process of making the in-game environments as detailed as possible to be a, quote, daunting task, and very much so. You know, we even have that still in today's standards of trying to tie in these pre-rendered, beautiful-looking cutscenes into the actual gameplay to make it as seamless as possible because. Without it, it does take you out of that experience. Absolutely. I think of games, especially games that were coming out probably a little bit after this, where that CGI technology really started to get uh, very, very good. Um, but the mm -hmm. gaming graphics weren't quite there yet. I think about, I don't know why this one comes to mind specifically, but like Marvel Ultimate Alliance and Marvel Ultimate Alliance 2 had some really wonderful looking cutscenes 
in them, but then the gameplay really like it, it was like looking at two totally different character designs. So mm-hmm. it's definitely a daunting task. I would agree with that. Now, we mentioned at the top of the episode, the marketing budget for Final Fantasy VII was around $80 million and was a large contribution to the success that this game had, as we see in a lot of video games. And Final Fantasy VII was announced in February 1996, along with early screenshots of the game. Square President and Chief Executive Officer Tomoyuki Takechi was fairly confident about Japanese players making the game a commercial success even on a new platform. A playable demo was included on a disc giveaway at the 1996 Tokyo Game Show, dubbed Square's Preview Extra, Final Fantasy VII, and SIGGRAPH 95 Works. The disc also included the early test footage Square created using characters from Final Fantasy VI. The initial release date was at some point in 1996, but to properly realize their vision, Square postponed the release date almost a full year. A playable demo of Final Fantasy VII was included with Squaresoft's Tobal No. 1 in 1996. During the game's initial marketing campaign in early 1997, numerous merchandise related to Final Fantasy VII were produced in Japan. There were various different types of toys produced, including novelty egg dispensers, pin badges, action figures, video game music CDs, and guidebooks. Sega's UFO Catcher arcade crane machines also contained Final Fantasy VII character keyrings and toys. In 1997, Studio Bent Stuff wrote the game guidebook Final Fantasy VII Katai Shinsho, which sold over 1.7 million copies. In 1998, the official Final Fantasy VII strategy guide was licensed by Squaresoft and published by Brady Games. Now, we also had Final Fantasy VII Snowboarding, which was a mobile port of the snowboard minigame featured in the OG game, featuring different courses for the player to tackle. The game is downloadable on VCast-compatible mobile phones and was first made available in 2005 in Japan and North America. In September 2009, Jason P. Blauda, Michael S. Bellu, Willy, created Final Fantasy and Philosophy, the ultimate walkthrough. This ebook is a philosophical guide as to why and how players use certain characters in the Final Fantasy series. Explains how games' perception of a character's weapon and clothing designs can change how they use them. The writers inform the reader that this ebook will give them an in-depth understanding of themselves and the game which will enhance their game experience, but it will not teach you how to pronounce their names correctly. <laughs> Final Fantasy VII G-Bike Another mobile game released for iOS and Android in December 2014 is based on the motorbike minigame featured in the OG game. And then in September of 07, Square Enix published Final Fantasy VII 10th Anniversary Ultimania. This book is an in-depth compilation of Final Fantasy VII's storyline and artwork. And in 2018, the Universal Studios theme park in Japan changed their space fantasy roller coaster into a virtual reality ride based around Final Fantasy with characters from... Final Fantasy VII. So a bit of everything when it comes to marketing, especially trying to sequence the different areas and localize what you need for it, it's pretty cool to see what they tried. Yeah, man. Japan gets all the cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Very jealous. Final Fantasy VII takes place on a world referred to in-game as the planet, though it has been retroactively named Gaia. The planet's life force, called the Life Stream, is a flow of spiritual energy that gives life to everything on the planet. Its process form is known as Mako, 
On a societal and technological level, the game has been defined as an industrial or post-industrial science fiction environment. During Final Fantasy VII, the planet's life stream is being drained for energy by the Shinra Electric Power Company, a world-dominating megacorporation headquartered in the city of Midgar. Shinra's actions are weakening the planet, threatening its existence and all life. Significant factions within the game include Avalanche, an eco-terrorist group seeking Shinra's downfall so the planet can recover, the Turks, a covert branch of Shinra's security forces, Soldier, an elite Shinra fighting force created by enhancing humans with Mako, and the Setra, also known as the Ancients, a near-extinct human tribe which maintains a strong connection to the planet and the life stream. The central protagonist is Cloud Strife, an unsociable mercenary who claims to be a former first-class soldier. Early on, he works with two members of Avalanche, Barrett Wallace, its brazen but fatherly leader, and Tifa Lockhart, a shy yet nurturing martial artist and childhood friend of Cloud. On their journey, they meet Aerith Gainsborough, a carefree flower merchant and one of the last surviving Cetra. Red 13, an intelligent quadruped from a tribe that protects the planet. Kate Sith, a fortune-telling robotic cat controlled by repentant Shinra staff member Reeve. And Sid Highwind, a pilot whose dream of being the first human in outer space was not realized. The group can also recruit Yuffie Kisaragi, a young ninja and skilled materia thief, and Vincent Valentine, a former Turk and victim of Shinra experiments. The game's main antagonists are Rufus Shinra, son of President Shinra and later leader of the Shinra Corporation, Sephiroth, a former soldier, who reappears several years after he was thought dead and seeks to harm the planet and become a god himself, and Genova a hostile extraterrestrial life form imprisoned by the Scepter 2,000 years before. A key character in Cloud's backstory is Zack Fair, a member of Soldier and Aerith's first love. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Now, it's a good summation of kind of where we are, what's happening, who's involved. Let's break it down to the actual story of it. So Avalanche destroys a Shinra Mako reactor in Midgar. An attack on another reactor goes wrong, and Cloud falls into the city slums. There, he meets Aerith and protects her from Shinra. Meanwhile, Shinra finds Avalanche and collapses part of the upper city, killing most of Avalanche along with the slum population below. Aerith is also captured. As a Cetra, she can potentially reveal the Promised Land, which Shinra believes is an overflowing 
with exploitable life stream energy. Cloud, Barrett, and Tifa rescued Hera. During their escape from Midgar, they discover that Rufus's father has been murdered by Sephiroth, who was presumed dead five years earlier. The party pursues Sephiroth across the planet with now President Rufus on their ta- trails. And their tails. Some may say trails and tails. The group begins to encounter Sephiroth during their journey, who continuously appears and disappears after taunting Cloud and sending Genova-esque monsters after him. Finding him at a Cetra temple, Sephiroth reveals his intentions to use the Black Materia to summon Meteor, a spell that will hit the planet with a devastating impact. Sephiroth will absorb the life stream as it attempts to heal the wound, becoming a godlike being. The party retrieves the Black Materia, but Sephiroth manipulates Cloud into surrendering it. Aerith departs alone to stop Sephiroth, following him to an abandoned Cetra city. During Aerith's prayer to the planet for help, Sephiroth attempts to force Cloud to kill her. Failing, he kills her himself before fleeing, angering Cloud. The party then learns that Genova is not a Cetra, as once thought. Rather, it is a hostile alien life form whose remains were unearthed by Shinra scientists decades earlier. At Nibelheim, Genova's cells were used to create Sephiroth. At the Northern Crater, the party learns that the Sephiroths they have encountered are Genova clones created by the insane Shinra scientist Hojo. The party confronts one particular Genova clone as it is killing other clones to reunite Genova's cells. After it is defeated, it drops the Black Materia, but Cloud is again manipulated into delivering it to the real Sephiroth. Sephiroth then taunts Cloud by showing another soldier in Cloud's place in his memories of Nibelheim, suggesting that Cloud is a failed Sephiroth clone. Sephiroth summons Meteor and seals the crater with a magical barrier. Cloud falls into the life stream, the party is captured by Rufus, and several giant monsters known as weapons emerge to defend the planet from harm. Escaping Shinra, the party discovers Cloud in an island hospital in a catatonic state from Mako poisoning. Tifa stays as his caretaker, and when the island is attacked by a weapon, the two fall into the life stream, where Tifa helps Cloud reconstruct his memories. A shy child during his time in Nibelheim, Cloud was blamed when a young Tifa injured herself trying to cross Mount Nebel. Resolving to become stronger, Cloud leaves for Midgard to join Soldier, but was never accepted into the organization. The soldier in his memories was his friend Zack. At Nibelheim, Cloud surprised and wounded Sephiroth after the latter's mental breakdown, but Genova preserved Sephiroth's life. Hojo experimented on Cloud and Zack for four years, injecting them with Genova's cells and Mako. They escaped, but Zack did not survive. The combined trauma of these events triggered an identity crisis in Cloud. He constructed a false persona around Zack's stories and his own fantasies. Cloud accepts his past and reunites with the party, who learned that Aerith's prayer to the planet had been successful. The planet had attempted to summon Holy to prevent Meteor's impact, but was undermined by Sephiroth. Shinra fails to destroy Meteor, but manages to defeat a weapon and puncture Sephiroth's barrier around the northern crater with its Mako-powered superweapon, the Sinister Ray. Hojo attempts to commandeer the superweapon to aid Sephiroth and reveals himself to be Sephiroth's biological father, 
before he is slain by Cloud's party. The party descends to the planet's core through the opening in the northern crater and defeats both Genova and Sephiroth. The party escapes and Holy is summoned, which destroys Meteor with the help of the life stream. 500 years later, Red 13 is seen with two cubs looking out over the ruins of Midgar, which are now covered in greenery, showing the planet has healed. So this is a pretty brief kind of summary of the gist of the story. There's definitely a lot more emotion and rawness involved. Like they said, kind of having Aerith's death and a lot of other aspects that go along with that. And like the huge reveal that Cloud, who he thought he was, was actually his own memory of his friend, Zack. And he doesn't really know who he is this time, this whole kind of crisis of it. It's a really beautiful story. And it's told really well, summarized here for you all. Now, one of the things that I think really started setting Final Fantasy apart from a lot of other RPGs was just in terms of the production quality when it came to the soundtrack, just, just the beautiful orchestral soundtrack that's applied to these games. And so the musical score of Final Fantasy VII was composed, arranged, and produced by Nobuo Umatsu, who had served as the sole composer for the six previous Final Fantasy games. Originally, Uematsu had planned to use CD-quality music with vocal performances to take advantage of the console's audio capabilities, but found that it resulted in the game having much longer load times for each area. Uematsu then decided that the higher-quality audio was not worth the trade-off with performance, and opted instead to use MIDI-like sounds produced by the console's internal sound sequencer, similar to how his soundtracks for the previous games in the series on the Super NES were implemented. The SNES only had eight sound channels to work with, and the PlayStation has 24. Eight are reserved for sound effects, leaving 16 available for the music. Uematsu's approach to composing the game's music was to treat it like a film soundtrack and compose music that reflected the mood of the scenes, rather than trying to make strong melodies to, quote, define the game, as he said that approach would be too strong when placed alongside the game's new 3D visuals. As an example, he composed the track intended for the scene in the game where Aerith Gainsborough is killed to be sad but beautiful, rather than more overtly emotional, creating a more understated feeling. Uematsu additionally said that the soundtrack had a feel of realism, which also prevented him from using exorbitant, crazy music that just like went over the top. Yeah, I think a good example of when maybe this doesn't work out so well is like in Skyrim sometimes um, you get into a fight and the music suddenly just goes crazy and it's like the, oh, someone's attacking me music. It just like sort of hits you in the face really hard and then it subsides, you know, and sometimes the environment, what's going on around you, it doesn't really match up in that regard. Yeah, and, and being more subtle in this instead of like way over the top like a lot of the games did, like, you know, with her death, you didn't want this huge somber orchestral piece. It was a very confusing time that is sad, but surprising and shocking and just kind of more numbing. And that's kind of where you see a lot of that come in that's not going way over the top with it, but is fitting the pieces correctly. And so the first piece that Uematsu composed for the game was the opening theme. Game director Yoshinori Kitasi showed him the opening cinematic and asked him to begin the project there. The track was well received in the company, which gave Uematsu, quote, a sense that it was going to be a really good project. 
Final Fantasy VII was the first game in the series to include a track with high-quality digitized vocals, One Winged Angel, which accompanies a section of the final battle of the game. The track has been called Uematsu's most recognizable contribution to the music of the Final Fantasy series, which Uematsu agrees with. Inspired by The Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky, to make a more classical track, and by rock and roll music from the late 1960s and early 1970s to make an orchestral track with a destructive impact, he spent two weeks composing short, unconnected musical phrases, and then arranged them together into One Winged Angel, an approach he had never used before. And music from the game has been released in several albums. Square released the main soundtrack album, Final Fantasy VII Original Soundtrack, on four compact discs through its DigiCube subsidiary in 1997. A limited edition release was also produced, containing illustrated liner notes. The regular edition of the album reached third on the Japan Oricon charts, while the limited edition series reached 19th. Overall, the album had sold nearly 150,000 copies by January 2010. A single-disc album of selected tracks from the original soundtrack, along with three arranged pieces titled Final Fantasy VII Reunion Tracks, was also released by Digicube in 1997, reaching 20 on the Japan Oricon charts. So we're seeing, you know, taking over the charts with this stuff. A third album, Piano Collections Final Fantasy VII, was released by Digicube in 2003 and contains one disc of piano arrangements of tracks from the game. It was arranged by Shiro Hamaguchi, and performed by Seiji Honda, and reached number 228 on the charts. There's also a 40-minute symphony in three movements, consisting of music from Final Fantasy VII, premiered in 2013 as part of the Final Symphony concert series, and was recorded a year later by the London Symphony Orchestra at Abbey Road Studios. Nobuo Eomatsu was on site and advised the production. The album entered the classical album top five on both Billboard charts and the official UK charts. So you know it's pretty good when the video game soundtrack is hitting the, the real world charts. That's when you know you make a little slapper up there. So of course there's been multiple iterations now of Final Fantasy VII. We talked about the remakes. Um, obviously we've talked about the original version, but let's just talk about that stuff a little more in depth. Final Fantasy VII was released on January 31st, 1997. A re-release of the game, based on its Western version, titled Final Fantasy VII International, was released on October 2nd, 1997. This improved international version would kickstart the trend for Square to create an updated version for the Japanese release based on the enhanced Western versions. The international version was re-released as a physical disc as part of the Final Fantasy 25th Anniversary Ultimate Box Japanese Package. While its success in Japan had been taken for granted by Square executives, North America and Europe were another matter, as up to that time role-playing games were still a niche market in Western territories. Sony, due to the PlayStation's struggles against Nintendo and Sega's home consoles, lobbied for the publishing rights in North America and Europe following Final Fantasy VII's transfer to PlayStation. To further persuade Square, Sony offered a lucrative royalties deal with profits potentially equaling those Square would get by self-publishing the game. Square accepted Sony's offer as Square itself lacked Western publishing experience. Square was also uncertain about the game's success, as other Japanese RPGs, including Final Fantasy VI, had met with poor sales outside of Japan. 
To help with promoting the game overseas, Square dissolved their original Washington offices and hired new staff for fresh offices in Costa Mesa. It was first exhibited to the Western public at E3 1996. Now, Square also developed a PC port to maximize the player base. Many Western consumers did not own a PlayStation, and Square's deal with Sony did not prohibit such a port. Having never released a PC game, Square treated it as a sales experiment. The port was handled by a team of 15 to 20 people, mostly from Costa Mesa and with help from Tokyo, after the console version was finished. Square was hiring staff to develop the PC version from early 1997, including job adverts published in video game magazines at the time. And by the time Square signed a publishing deal for the PC version at the end of 1997, the Costa Mesa group had already begun working on it for seven months. The team needed to rewrite an estimated 80% of the game's code, due to the need to unify what had been a custom build for a console written by multiple staff members. Consequently, programmers faced problems such as having to unify the original PlayStation version's five different game engines, leading to delays. The PC version came with a license from Yamaha Corporation's software synthesizer, SYXG70, uniformly delivering high-quality sequenced music to a chaotic hardware market. The conversion of the nearly 100 original music pieces to XG format files was done by Yamaha. And to maximize chances of success, Square searched for a Western company to assist with releasing the PC version. Eidos Interactive, whose release of Tomb Raider had turned into a publishing giant, agreed to make and publish the port. It was announced in December 1997, along with Eidos' exclusivity deal for North America and Europe at the time. Though the port was rumored to happen as early as December 1996, even prior to the PlayStation version's release. To help the product stand out in stores, Eidos chose a trapezoidal shape for the cover and box. They agreed on a contract price of 1.8 million US dollars, making initial sales forecasts of 100,000 units based on that outlay. The PC version was released in North America and Europe on June 25, 1998. The port was not released in Japan, unfortunately. Within one month, Sales of the port exceeded the initial forecasts, and the PC version would end up providing the source code for subsequent ports, so kind of needing to have that base layer down to kind of push it out everywhere else. The world of Final Fantasy VII is explored further in the compilation of Final Fantasy VII, a series of games, animated features, and short stories. The first game in the compilation is the mobile game Before Crisis, Final Fantasy VII, a prequel focusing on the Turks' activities six years before the original game. The CGI film sequel Final Fantasy VII Advent Children, set two years after the game, is the first installment announced but the second to be released. Special DVD editions of the film included Last Order, Final Fantasy VII, an original video animation that recounts the destruction of Nibelheim, Dirge of Cerberus, Final Fantasy VII, and its mobile phone counterpart, Dirge of Cerberus Lost Episode, Final Fantasy VII, are third-person shooters set one year after Advent Children. Dirge focuses on the backstory of Vincent Valentine, whose history was left mostly untold in Final Fantasy VII. The most recent is the PlayStation Portable game Crisis Core, Final Fantasy VII, an action RPG that centers on Zack's past. 
Now, localization of Final Fantasy VII was handled internally by Square. The English localization led by Seth Luisi was completed by a team of about 50 people who faced a variety of problems. According to Luisi, the biggest hurdle was making, quote, the direct Japanese-to-English text translation read correctly in English. The sentence structure and grammar rules for the Japanese language are very different from English, making it difficult for the translation to read like native English without distorting the meaning. And I think that that is uh, the main issue that most localization efforts mm-hmm. face. Michael Basket was the sole translator for the project, though he received the help of native Japanese speakers from the Tokyo office. The localization was taxing for the team due to their inexperience, lack of professional editors, and poor communication between the North American and Japanese offices. A result of this disconnect was the original localization of Aerith's name, which was intended as a conflation of air and earth as Eris, due to a lack of communication between localization staff and the quality assurance team. The team also faced several technical issues due to programming practices which took little account of subsequent localization, such as dealing with a fixed-width font and having to insert kanji through language input keys to add special characters, for example, vowels with diacritics, to keep the code working. Consequently, the text was still read as Japanese by the word processor, so the computer's spell check could not be used, and mistakes had to be caught manually. The code used obscure kanji to refer to main characters' names, which made it unintuitive for the translators to identify characters. Translated text usually takes up more space than the Japanese text, though still had to fit to the screen appropriately without overusing page breaks. For example, item names, which are written in kanji in Japanese language, could overflow message windows in translated text. To mitigate this problem, a proportional typeface was implemented into the source code to fit more text into the screen. Swear words were used frequently in the localization to help convey the original Japanese meaning. Though most profanities were censored in a manner described by Square employee Richard Hollywood as the old comic book, like, you know, at sign, pound, dollar sign, to be like a swear word, fill in as a replacement for it. The European release was described as being in a worse condition, as the translations into multiple European languages were outsourced by Sony to another company, further hindering communication. For the PC port, Square attempted to fix translation and grammar mistakes for the North American and European versions, but did not have the time and budget to retranslate all the text. According to Honeywood, the success of Final Fantasy VII in the West encouraged Square to focus more on localization quality. On future games, Square hired additional translators and editors, while also streamlining communication between the development and localization teams. Now, some months prior to the game's North American release, Sony publicly stated that it was considering cutting the scene at the Honey Bee Inn due to the salacious content, prompting numerous online petitions and letters of protest from RPG fans. Square subsequently stated that it would never allow Sony to localize the game in any way. In addition to translating the text, the North American localization team made tweaks to the gameplay, including reducing the enemy encounter rate, simplifying the materia menu, and adding new boss fights. 
The international version of Final Fantasy VII was released on the PlayStation Network as a PS1 classic in Japan on April 10th, 2009. This version was compatible with both PlayStation 3 and PlayStation Portable, with support for PlayStation Vita and PlayStation TV coming later. Final Fantasy VII was later released as a PS1 classic in North America, Europe, and Australia on June 2nd. The PC version was updated by .emu for use on modern operating systems and released via Square Enix's North American and European online stores on August 14th, 2012. It included high-resolution support, cloud saves, achievements, and a character booster. It would later be released via Steam on July 4th, 2013, replacing the version available on Square Enix's North American and European online stores. The PC version would be released in Japan for the first time on May 16th, 2013, exclusively via Square Enix's Japanese online store with the international version title. It has features unavailable in the Western version, including high-speed mode, no random encounters mode, and a max stats command. A release for iOS based on the PC version and adjusted for mobile devices by D4 Enterprise was released on August 19, 2015 with an autosave feature. After being announced at PlayStation Experience 2014, the PC version was released for PS4 on December 5, 2015. A version for Android was released on July 7, 2016. A version for the PlayStation Classic was released on December 3, 2018. And a version for the Nintendo Switch and Xbox One was released worldwide on March 26, 2019. So they've been consistently releasing this game for a very, mm-hmm. very long time. And it will never, ever fail to shock me that these games that once went from, oh man, how are we even going to fit all of this data on this disc for this console? Now you can play it with pretty much any basic phone that you get that classifies as a smartphone. Yeah, it's amazing how that shift has been made and to see like the importance of PC ports in general. And especially like when you're, especially man, PS1, PS2 era, we've talked about it a lot, just how hard it was to like, program for those because they had like like we're not going to share our secrets with you but you have to to let us program for your consoles no and so then it becomes difficult to then port that elsewhere or use it so you see the importance of these pc ports that keeps the game alive i mean taking that original pc port updating it and then slapping it back on a console the same company you've been working for this entire time is pretty telling in that point of it now the Talk about the legacy of it and just kind of what came down from 7 specifically. The game inspired an unofficial version for the NES by Chinese company Shenzhen Nanji Technology. This port features the Final Fantasy VII game scaled back to 2D, with some of the side quests removed. The game's popularity and open-ended nature also led director Kitasi and scenario writer Nojima to establish a plot-related connection between Final Fantasy VII in Final Fantasy X-2. The character Shinra from Final Fantasy X-2 proposes the concept of extracting life energy from within the planet Spira, or Spira. Nojima had stated that Shinra and his proposal are a deliberate nod to the Shinra company and that he envisioned the events of Final Fantasy X-2 as a prequel to those in Final Fantasy VII. The advances in technology used to create the FMV sequences and computer graphics for Final Fantasy VII allowed Sakaguchi to begin production on the first Final Fantasy film, 
Final Fantasy The Spirits Within. The game introduced a particular aesthetic to the series, fantasy suffused with modern to advanced technology, that was explored further in Final Fantasy VIII, The Spirit Within, and Final Fantasy XV. Re-releases of Square games in Japan with bonus features would occur frequently after the release of Final Fantasy VII International. Later games that would be re-released as international versions include Final Fantasy X and other follow-ups in the franchise, as well as the Kingdom Hearts series. Several characters from Final Fantasy VII have made cameo appearances in other Square Enix games, such as the fighting game Urgeis and the popular Final Fantasy to Disney crossover series Kingdom Hearts. Additionally, fighting video game Dissidia Final Fantasy includes Final Fantasy VII characters such as Cloud and Sephiroth, and allows players to fight with characters from throughout the Final Fantasy series. And its follow-up, Dissidia 012 Final Fantasy, included Tifa as well. Cloud is also a playable character in Final Fantasy Tactics. In December 2015, Cloud was released as a DLC character for the Nintendo crossover fighting game Super Smash Bros. for the Nintendo 3DS and Wii U, along with a stage based on Midgar. And he returned in 2018 with Super Smash Bros. Ultimate with Sephiroth being added to Ultimate as DLC in December 2020 as part of the Fighter's Pass Volume 2 lineup, alongside nine additional music tracks from Final Fantasy VII, three additional Mii costumes based on Aerith, Barrett, and Tifa, 13 new spirit themes around Final Fantasy, and a new stage based on the Northern Cave, the final area in the original game. On television, Final Fantasy VII was parodied in the second season of Robot Chicken in 2006, Derek, I don't think you thought you'd be hearing about Robot Chicken today, first of all, um, but also about Final Fantasy. I want this to be a Robot Chicken podcast. Let's just do that instead. <laughs> Throw it back. The switch, the switch is happening. In the months leading up to the game's release, the game had a high level of anticipation. The Final Fantasy VII demo included with Tobal Number 1 helped push that game to the top of the Japanese sales charts, selling 752 100,000 copies to become Japan's 8th best-selling video game of 1996. In the weeks leading up to the release of Final Fantasy VII in January of 1997, PlayStation consoles had sold out across Japan. The game had over 1.1 million pre-orders about 10 days before release, increasing to 1.83 million pre-sales shortly before the release. On its first day of release in Japan, the game sold 1.75 million copies, grossing about 12 billion yen or about 99 million US dollars, which would be equivalent to 167 million in 2021. In two days, it sold over 2 million copies, grossing about 14 billion yen. And within three days of release, 2.3 million copies were sold, setting the record for the fastest selling game ever at that time. Final Fantasy VII had a high attach rate, with the PlayStation having an install base of around 4 million in Japan at the time. It was a killer app for the PlayStation, with Computing Japan magazine noting that it was largely responsible for the PlayStation's global installed base increasing from 10 million units sold by November of 1996 to 16 million units sold by May of 1997, or an increase of 60%. The game sold nearly 3 million units by April more than 3 million by July, and almost 3.5 million units by August of 1997. 
The game helped push PlayStation sales ahead of the Sega Saturn in Japan after the PlayStation and Saturn had been very close in Japan prior to the game's release. Worldwide, it was the best-selling video game of 1997. It sold more than 6 million copies by 1998, becoming the best-selling PlayStation game up until then. And the PlayStation version went on to sell 7.24 million copies worldwide by 1999 and 9.34 million units by March of 2003. By 2007, bringing total sales of the PlayStation version to more than 10 million copies worldwide. The game received universal acclaim from critics upon release, scoring 95% or higher in most publications at the time. It was referred to by game fan as, quote, quite possibly the greatest game ever made. A quote selected for the back cover of the game's jewel case. GameSpot commented that, quote, never before have technology, playability, and narrative combined as well as in Final Fantasy VII, expressing particular favor towards the game's graphics, audio, and story. The game's visuals and use of FMV cutscenes were lauded by critics. IGN's Jay Bohr insisted the game's graphics were, quote, light years ahead of anything ever seen on the PlayStation and regarded its battle system as its strongest point. Critics also praised its gameplay and writing. In Computer and Video Games magazine, Paul Davies said the thrilling and magnificent plot would rock your emotions and revolutionize your belief of what a video game can achieve, while Alex C. praised the dramatic story and well-developed characters. And Digitizer praised the size of the game world, calling it the largest video game of all time, which is funny to think about now, <laughs> while considering the game perfect in almost every respect. Dan Toos of Hyper Magazine praised the sub-games, or mini-games, particularly the motorbike minigame, which reminded him of the anime film Akira. Final Fantasy VII has also received some negative criticism, that 5%, with OPM and GameSpot questioning the game's linear progression. OPM considered the game's translation a bit muddy, while RP Gamer cited the game's translation as, quote, packed with typos and other errors, which further obscure what is already a very confusing plot. GamePro also considered the Japanese-to-English translation a significant weakness in the game, and IGN regarded the ability to use only three characters at a time as, quote, the game's only shortcoming. So they even talked about that as being like, hey, I wish we had gone back and spent more time doing the translations instead of just one dude trying to jump back and forth, and they knew that was their shortcoming just as critics have been like, hey, the one thing you got wrong was the thing you know you got wrong. And, you know, based on their previous experiences, you can sort of understand it because they didn't anticipate this game doing well yeah. in the Western markets. And so to them, it was, hey, we're going to give this a shot, but we're not going to dive in too deep. And unfortunately, that was the end result, but still a classic game overall. Mm -hmm. Final Fantasy VII is credited as having the largest impact of the Final Fantasy series. In 2002, GameSpot ranked it as the second most influential game ever made. In 2005, Electronic Gaming Monthly ranked it the sixth most important game since they began publication in 1989, stating it was the first RPG to surpass, instead of copy, movie-like storytelling, and taught gamers, quote, how to cry. Samuel Roberts of Retro Gamer, writing for GamesRadar, called Final Fantasy VII one of the most important and influential RPGs of all time in January of 2020. And in 2018, the Strong National Museum of Play inducted Final Fantasy VII 
to its World Video Game Hall of Fame. The game is credited with allowing console role-playing games to gain mass-market appeal outside of Japan. Role-playing video games were a niche genre in North America up until Final Fantasy VII introduced the genre to a mainstream audience there, and it is the first mainline Final Fantasy game to have been released in Europe, where its success generated mainstream interest in RPGs. It popularized Japanese role-playing games outside of Japan, in addition to opening up the game console market for Western computer role-playing game developers such as BioWare. According to Gene Park of the Washington Post, Final Fantasy VII, quote, single-handedly put role-playing video games on the global map. It also boosted sales of the original PlayStation and demonstrated the advantages of CD-ROM media over ROM cartridge media. According to Sonar Computer Entertainment founder and PlayStation architect Ken Kutaragi, Final Fantasy VII was a driving force that propelled gaming forward along with the PlayStation, and the game contributed to growing global awareness of Japanese popular culture along with anime. According to Matt Alt, Final Fantasy VII injected a megadose of Japanese sensibilities into the American mainstream, including big-eyed, bushy-haired anime characters, manga-styled melodrama, androgynous heroes, and the very idea that video games could be meditative explorations as well as thrill rides. Final Fantasy VII was one of the first video games produced at a blockbuster scale, or AAA scale as we know it in the gaming industry. It was the most expensive video game ever developed up until then, and its expensive advertisement campaign was also unprecedented for a video game. It set a benchmark for video game graphics, full motion video, cinematic CGI production values, and movie-like presentation, along with its innovative blend of gameplay with dynamic cinematic camera work. It also set a benchmark for orchestral video game music, with Aerith's theme appearing on the Classic FM Hall of Fame at 16th place in 2012, and with Elizabeth Davis of Classic FM UK calling it, quote, one of the most famous pieces of video game music ever written, and stating that Final Fantasy VII helped introduce a whole generation to the magic of orchestral music. The large number of minigames was also unprecedented for a role-playing game inspiring numerous later titles to incorporate minigames into them. The game's storytelling was considered revolutionary for its time and resonated with most of its audience. The depth of its storytelling, along with its character building, emotional scenes, and cinematic production values made it a landmark for video game storytelling. Aerith's death, in particular, has often been referred to as one of the most significant moments from any video game. It is one of the most iconic deaths in video game history, is frequently cited as one of gaming's most shocking and emotional scenes, and cemented Sephiroth's status as one of the most infamous video game villains. The scene topped IGN's list of top 100 video game moments, calling it a genre-defining moment, and representative of gaming's emotional journey from kids' entertainment to modern storytelling medium. Brian Taylor, writing for Killscreen, described a cottage industry of fan theories for how to return Aerith to life or prevent her death. He compared those efforts to the letter-writing campaign to convince Charles Dickens not to let Nell, the endearing protagonist of The Old Curiosity Shop, die at the end of the book. Taylor affirmed that the acts of discussing these fan theories and dissecting the game code to test them comprise a valid and important part of the experience of the game. The game has inspired numerous developers, 
GameSpot stated that Final Fantasy VII was the RPG that would influence every role-playing game that would follow after it, and that its cinematic approach to storytelling was widely adopted by later RPGs. Its limit-break gameplay mechanic became a core mechanic in subsequent Final Fantasy games. According to Samuel Roberts of RetroGamer, the game's character designs would shape Japanese RPGs for years to come. Fable creator Peter Molyneux considers Final Fantasy VII to be the RPG that defined the genre for him. BioWare founder Greg Zeschuk cited Final Fantasy VII as, quote, the first really emotionally engaging game that he played and said it had a big impact on BioWare's work. Black Isle Studios cited Final Fantasy VII as an inspiration for Planescape Torment. According to a contributor from Hardcore Gaming 101, Final Fantasy VII's spell animations and character quests may have influenced Western computer RPGs such as Planescape Torment and BioWare's Baldur's Gate 2. Media Molecule's Constantine Jupp credited Final Fantasy VII with getting him into game design. Tim Schafer cited Final Fantasy VII as one of his favorite games of all time. And that game company founder, Genova Chen, cited Final Fantasy VII as one of the biggest influences on his work and the game that inspired his adopted name from the character Genova. Grinding Gear Games designer Chris Wilson cited the materia system of Final Fantasy VII as an influence on Path of Exile. I mean, really, we could have, we could have pretty much just read this last paragraph and that could have just been the summation of why and how important this game is to the industry. Uh, most of those people we talked about there, we've covered their game. Yes. And we've covered either their RPG or like talk about Tim Schafer. Like we've talked about him in the past and he's done plenty of games, you know, that have worked with Double Fine and, and plenty of others. But just what it is to, to make, I, I guess what it is to be like, hey, we came together. You know, we wanted to make it for the PlayStation, make it a little more impactful, spend a little money. Oh, we, we created one of the most influential games for RPGs of all times that's cited as also one of the greatest games ever. Well, that's cool. I guess we tried. <laughs> so with that summation, that paragraph and what we have, obviously that, that gives a lot of our opinion there. But Derek, as always, as we wrap this episode up, let the people know, why did we choose Final Fantasy VII specifically? And what do you think of it? I mean, what a journey, right, to go from this Nintendo staple that's sort mm -hmm. of maybe, it's known, but a little unknown as well, to tell Nintendo, who's, I mean, such a influential figure in the gaming world, to say, hey, look, um, what you guys are doing just doesn't really fit with our vision for mm -hmm. where this game series can go. And we don't have any interest in continuing um, working with you just based on the trajectory of your console development. I mean, that's a, a pretty bold statement, I think, to say to someone like Nintendo, where they are not only, I, I think, taking a little bit of a risk on Square and, and publishing their game, mm -hmm. but they're also maybe feeling a little bit of that pressure to then be really really successful without the help of nintendo and so they go and they make final fantasy 7 and it's massively successful massively influential on rpgs jrpgs as a genre but also all these other video game developers and you know it's interesting because we've touched on this in other podcasts but games like this now 
in video game development, we've had enough people be around for long enough now to where the games that they played as kids that were finally available to them on home consoles have influenced them to go into the industry and mm-hmm. become developers and to make their own games. And, you know, for Final Fantasy to have that kind of impact, not only on, I think, normalizing more of Japanese culture around the globe to also making uh, the JRPG genre as a more desired genre within video gaming. I mean, to also have that impact on developers who don't necessarily make JRPGs, but they do make a lot of RPGs like Bioware, where it's about Mm -hmm. sort of creating your own stories and journey. I think that that's something to really, really be proud of. All the people that did work on this game. Um, obviously, the game speaks for itself. It's a lot of fun. 10 out of 10 game did everything that they set out to accomplish. Obviously, the uh, translation of some of the stuff is a little weird. But, I mean, a lot of games from that era had mistakes and things like that. It's stuff that you can get over and move past. You just kind of got to accept that and and understand that it's just sort of a product of the time. But there's a reason that this game has still been getting the attention that it does. The reason that this game is getting all the uh, remake attention that it does uh, because it's just a great game. And that's my review. What about you? No, I, I think that's exactly it. It's, it's taking character models. Cause I mean, we've had some RPGs up until this point in a Western market um, that we've seen mostly on PCs for that point. Um, you know, we've seen some stuff on console, but this changing that idea of, like you said, investing and in bringing Japanese culture to the Western market in, in not just a stereotypical way, but in a way of actually engaging with the medium and engaging with what they've created in a, in a very beautifully telling story. And I think truly what really helped adapt that was coming out of some of those fantasy backgrounds and making it almost like dystopian cyberpunky, but still fantasy, but kind of modern, but still in the past. Like it was, it was done in such a cool way that I think brought a U.S. audience in for that too. Kind of have that grittiness to it and, and that Americaness around it that brought people into it where it wasn't just this very colorful anime style game. I think the art style really, really attributed to this. And you can see the greenness in Square at the time. I mean, this is their seventh iteration coming to it, but it's the only, it's the really the first one that truly, truly caught on in the US and in the West as a major, major player. And for them to be like, well, I mean, we've done translations in the past. Those were fine to see now like, oh, we can sink time and money into like, this is our one thing we had to really increase. And when people talk about Final Fantasy and you had someone maybe play it as a kid or, or know about it, seven is typically the first one that always comes to someone's mind. Not the first one, not the fourth one, not the 10th or the 10th X two one, but seven. <laughs> seven is typically always there. And it, it, it's frustrating. I think if you're, you know, Final Fantasy eight, nine, and 10, you're kind of like floundering in this success pool of never being able to achieve what your sibling did. So I could see why those like n- never hit that mark in a way. 
It's unfortunate, yeah. but this just rose above it. And as I said earlier, like all of your favorite, whether it's an RPG style like Bioware or that game company going to play Journey or something like that, like seeing that influence built into it of just storytelling and dramatic storytelling and and really Game of Thronesing the world with like a very unexpected death. Yeah. Of like a main character you've been with is is very, very huge. Yeah, and what a so, great example. Because yeah. Game of Thrones, uh, for all the hate it gets for its finale, absolutely revolutionary television show. Because you can't watch a show today after you've seen Game of Thrones and feel that any character is safe ever. Yeah. And this was 100% that for video games. Yeah, it, it really was. Because, I mean, you're thinking like, okay, I'm going to fight against it. And you do. You successfully like, I'm not going to do it. And then Sephiroth's like, fine, I'll do it. And, and, and it's one of those things that really, really hit home. I remember playing this as a kid and just like being shocked at that. Like, this is a character I was like, it wasn't just like some random side soldier. It wasn't a Carmine. You know, this was a main kind of character that was going on and that like oh, poor really Carmine. mattered. So, you know, for that, if I had to get a rating, I would be passing out Phoenix Downs to all of us when we went down ugh, from sadness to be revived to play the rest of the game out of 10. Nice. A little depressing, but I like it. Hey, it's life, Derek. Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall and Derek Baker. The intro and outro music for this podcast was written and recorded by our friend Evan Barr, and our lovely artwork was given to us by Aaron Shattuck. Beautiful people, as always. And if you wanted to support us a little further, a little monetarily, some might say, we got a Patreon. Patreon.com slash finish the fight. That's where you can see some physical, digital rewards, as well as our gaming servers, uh, our D&D group, and many other things on there. So check that out today. And I want to thank a few select members with Sky the Bear, Dust Storm, Snide T-Bird, that LL Gamer Guy, Nick Hyman, Climbing Spork, Lee Tom John, Keller Kane, and Brian Yost. Thank you all so much for your support. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter. We're also on Discord. It's free to join. Alex and I are hanging out in there all the time. We're talking games, talking TV shows, talking movies, talking life, talking about jobs talking about all kinds of stuff just depends come hang out we'd love to see you there so always you can catch us on twitch you can see me at twitch.tv slash sourman70 that's twitch.tv slash s-o-u-r-m-a-n-7-0 as well as derek at twitch.tv slash the bakerman 247 that is twitch.tv slash the bakerman 247 you can find this podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify or most likely your favorite podcast listening platform if you haven't yet, please drop us a review. We love to hear from you, and it helps us out a lot. And with that, this has been our coverage of Final Fantasy VII. Now, do you agree that this is probably, if not, the best RPG of all time? Or what is something that rivals it? For me, it's Paper Mario. But for you, let me know what it is. Hit us up in the discords, the socials. Let's chat. Breath of Death 7 for this guy. No, I'm just kidding. Listen, if that's yours, let us know. <laughs> and with that, again, 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 this has been Finish the Fight. I mixed it up. <laughs> yep. You're the host.
There are no hosts no more. Derek's got to know when to start queuing up the music. Future Derek's (laughs) got to know. And with that, again and again and again, as always, I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Derek Baker. And this has been Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. (laughs) 